Good morning. Thank you for the music team and the AV team and all those who've helped to get this morning ready and lead us in our worship. It's been great. Thank you. Well, we're into James chapter 4, living the Christian life, humble yourself. I, I trust that you found this series in, in the letter of James to have been challenging, interesting, and helpful in your work, walk with the Lord. Today, we embrace a rather difficult topic from chapter 4, namely, humble yourself. Elaine's going to come and read the Scriptures. Thank you, Elaine. We turn then to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Some challenging words, some hard words, and when we first looked at it, I thought, gosh, what a letter to send anybody. You weren't the only one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, as it progresses on the reading, you'll see that the warmth comes through, the comfort, the assurance, the hope, encouragement. So words from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But, he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will lift you up. Amen. Thank you, Elaine. As Elaine rightly said, a bit of a challenging portion of scripture, this. Bob Hope, the uh, American actor and comedian, was presented with the gold medal uh, for services to his country. And as President Kennedy presented him with that medal, he remarked, I feel very humble, but I think I have the strength of character to fight it. <laughs> Another American, Muhammad Ali, he once stated, when you're as great as I am, it's difficult to be humble. Ali was once traveling uh, by air and was requested by the flight attendant to put his seatbelt on. He said to her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She smiled at him and said, Superman don't need no plane either. And whilst our scripture reader reading uh, in this series for today commences at verse 4, we need to examine the background to understand the way in which James tackles these few verses. Therefore, we read from the first verse, and James commences with an important, urgent question to the folks he's writing to. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you. We are more than likely to face conflict sometime in our lives, and uh, probably it's true to say that we don't like it at all. It tends to leave us in pain, wounded in some way or another. Even if it is only an angry exchange of words in a conversation, we, we feel the impact. James was very straight talking. He gets right to the point. He's very blunt. He, he does not dodge around the issues and is speaking mainly to the leaders of the early church. However, just in case you decide to nod off, the very pointed message he writes is just as applicable to each one of us if we are claiming to be a Christian. James wants us to understand that the source of conflict is a result of the fall that indwelling sin that plagues us and that touches every aspect of our lives. Relationships are wrecked by conflict. Families are torn apart by conflict. Businesses can be ruined by conflict. You may have seen on the news it was conflict over money that caused a disgruntled builder recently to cause millions of pounds worth of damage when he smashed a row of newly built homes with a JCB. And James would have us to understand that the answer to his question is that conflicts and quarrels and fighting comes from people's desires or pleasures or their passions. And there are fights and quarrels within the fellowship of believers that he's writing to. And these are be between people in the church. 
It's not individuals having conflict in their lives. What we're seeing here is internal strife in the Christian world. A battle is raging. Different desires are in evidence, and a struggle with sin, and a pull towards self. Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 7 gives us clear insight into this problem. Summing up in this chapter, which deals with the struggle we have with sin, he writes this, and Paul writes in a very complicated manner, but here it is, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, says Paul, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. In verse 2 of our passage, the word lust is used in most translations. And uh, it's not all that helpful for us in this modern world. The modern usage of that world often seems to indicate some sexual connotation. It, it's better to understand what James is trying to say is, is this, that, that we desire and we do not have or you want something but don't get it. John MacArthur comments that murder is the ultimate result of thwarted desires. James has in mind actual murder and the gamut of sins, hate and anger and bitterness leading up to it. And the picture is of unbelievers so driven by their uncontrollable evil desires that they will fight to the death to fulfill those desires. It's maybe that James is using figurative speech, but it does show the seriousness of the problem. See what we have here. They were quarreling and fighting and not receiving what they desired. Do please take note of this. So here we have, on the one hand, they're not receiving because they did not ask. But also, on the other hand, not receiving when they ask because they're asking with wrong motives. Quick question. Anybody find prayer easy? Don't have to answer it. But verses 2 and 3 are all about prayer. Now, does God always answer prayer? 
I, I would say, yes, he does. But sometimes when we ask, he says, no. Why? Because we're asking with the wrong motives. John MacArthur again, ask wrongly or because you ask with the wrong motives. This refers to acting in an evil manner motivated by personal gratification and selfish desire. Seeking things for their own pleasure and not for the honor and glory of God. You see what James is saying here? Self-motives guarantee unanswered prayer, or at least not the answer we were hoping for. God wants us to be the people who have the interests of the kingdom of God at heart, getting our motives right. There, there is often a plea from this platform for more interaction from us all when it comes to prayer. And when we look at the scenario that James is addressing with all the language of a, a full-scale war, it would be rather easy for us to be smug or complacent here at CBC. After all, we don't tend to have battles at body talk, not anticipating one next Tuesday. Generally, we don't have punch-ups during prayer and praise. And we can thank God for our fellowship here at CBC, which is friendly, welcoming, happy, tolerant of each other's foibles and strange ways. But we need to be ever careful. We need to be ever alert. The enemy does not take kindly to us and will seek to intervene. Will seek to destroy. Will seek to cause us when we are at least when we're at the least expecting it, to have trouble in our midst and for havoc to reign instead of harmony. If you've never been in a church where there is discord, mistrust, or infighting, then you have not missed much. I can tell you from experience that it is a most disturbing, damaging, debilitating experience and one to be avoided at all costs. Now, hopefully we can appreciate why we've looked briefly at these opening verses in chapter 4. Verse 4, with which our study commences, explodes with what seems to be one of the most outlandish statements we could imagine. James screams from the pages of this letter, you adulterous people. Or, or to put it in another way, you faithless wives. There's an accusation of spiritual unfaithfulness here. Now, uh, before you ladies will get on to me in the break, thinking I'm being rather gender biased, let me explain. Here we're reading one of the earliest New Testament books, probably the earliest, written between A.D. 44 and 49. And James addresses mainly Jewish leaders and Jewish readers. And they would have been familiar with the Old Testament description of Israel 
as a spiritual harlot. Israel was often described as the wife with God as the husband. And there were plenty of occasions when Israel was deemed to be unfaithful. Just for example, 2 Chronicles chapter 21 uh, speaks about Jehoram. And this is what it says. He had also built high places on the hills of Judah and had caused the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves and led Judah astray. Elijah writes to this guy and he writes with a message from the Lord, spells out a few home truths. Then in Jeremiah 2.20, long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Let's look at what John says in a profound statement in 1 John 2. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, let's be clear very clear about what John and James are talking about. They're not looking at the world as, for instance, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's his created world into which he placed Adam and Eve and subsequently mankind to enjoy the beauty and the bounty of his creatorial actions. That's the world that Jesus came to and lived in and eventually died for. James has in view professing Christians outwardly associated with the church but holding a deep affection for the evil world system. The friendship he indicates is one of love in a, it's in the sense of a strong emotional attachment. Attachment to a system that is man-organized and is functioning apart from God. And things haven't changed, excuse me. We see that all around us. Governments and organizations worldwide have no acknowledgement of God. They function not always in in an evil sense, but with no regard to their creator God. He is excluded from all of their deliberations. Now, verse 4 would teach us that God is at conflict with this fallen world and that he opposes those who are tied in with the fallen and the adulterous nature and desires of those in that world. It's a sad indictment that those who are friends with the world are enemies of God. Therefore, my brothers and sisters here at CBC this morning, we must conclude from what James is saying that we're either friends with God 
or we're friends with the world. Can't have a foot in both camps. Cannot be active in both and be effective. And God is in conflict with us when we make friendship with the world and he bluntly calls it adultery. Our God is jealous in the right sense of that world. He's jealous for our loyalty, jealous for our love, jealous for our affection. And when we have conflict raging with our fellow Christians, we also have conflict with our Father God. We cannot have hearts that petition our benevolent God when subsequently we spend what he gives on our fleshly desires and then expect that we will remain a friend of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us this, No soldier in active service entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not perpetrating the idea that we cannot be involved with everyday life. God's not calling us to be spiritual hermits or to clear off and live in a monastery, lock ourselves away. We have to function in the world around us. We have to live. We have to eat. We have to rest. We have to play. We have to interact with our friends and family. The rub comes when we become entangled with the affairs of this life so much that our devotion to God goes down the tubes. And then, we have a problem. And this is why James homes in on the accusation of adultery. If we are loyal to a fallen world, then spiritual adultery will be our condition. So, what's the secret of being in close friendship with our God? Well, John 15, 14 says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Simply put, our friendship with the Father is based on our being obedient to his will. And then verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, if you've got your Bible open or your phone, or whatever. Look at that word spirit in verse 5. Some of you will have a capital S. Some of you may have a lowercase s. That scripture quote you won't find chapter and verse in the Old Testament. It's a, uh, a composite of the general Old Testament teaching. But the phrase, jealously over the Spirit, it's a difficult one. And it's perhaps best understood by seeing the Spirit as a reference not to the Holy Spirit, but to the human spirit. James' point is that an unbelieving person's spirit, their inner person, is bent on evil. 
And we only need to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 to get this, to catch the gist of what he's talking about. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's definitely not the Holy Spirit. Now, those who think otherwise defy biblical diagnosis of fallen human nature. And those who live in worldly lusts give evidence that their faith is not genuine. And there we conclude with what James says is the solution. Often the pattern in Scripture when we're reading the Bible is this, that when a problem is presented to us, there, there follows a but or therefore. And we know that uh, uh, as we read on, that we're on the way to an answer, a solution, something that God is trying to convey to us. Verse 6. Here we go. But he gives more grace. God gives us more grace. Our God is a generous God. Our God is a bountiful God. Our God, our God withholds nothing from us when we seek his will. When we desire his purpose for our lives. And when we seek to live for him on a daily basis. David, uh, in Psalm 138, verse 6, says this, Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, or the humble, but the proud he knows from afar. And James reiterates that truth. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here then, in the final three verses of our scripture for today, James presents to us ten imperatives or ten commands. And these reveal how we receive saving grace, thereby understanding how we can respond to his gracious gracious offer of salvation and discloses what it means to be humble. Verse 7 Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit. Or literally to line up under. It's a a, a military phrase, phrase where soldiers place themselves under the authority of their commander. We read in Scripture of Jesus submitting to his parents' authority, Luke chapter 2. Of our submission that is required to human government, Romans 13. Ephesians 5 brings us the church's submission to Christ. And servants' submission to their masters from Titus chapter 2. You see, what James is saying is that there needs to be on our part a willing 
conscious submission to God's authority as King of kings and Lord of lords. If we are to be truly humble, then we will endeavor in our motives, in our actions, to surrender our allegiance to Him and to Him alone. But we have a battle. You don't need me to tell you this. We have a battle that persistently rages within us. And we need God's constant help. We need God's constant grace. We need God's constant presence in the strife. Paul writing, uh, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, reminds us that our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And James reminds us in this passage of those three elements that we battle against constantly with the world in verse 4, with the flesh in verses 1, 2, and 5, and the devil in verse 7. Now, let's not get too carried away uh, and give the devil more kudos than he deserves. God is omnipresent, Satan is not. However, what James is reminding us here is, is that there is a continuous demonic influence surrounding each of our lives. We're not immune from evil. And we need to be very aware of our propensity for it. Our bodies are the battleground. And we need ever to be at the quartermaster's store, as Paul encourages us in Ephesians 6, to take up the full armor of God. Why? Well, he gives the reason that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Verse 8 of our passage. Draw near to God. His desire is that we pursue an intimate loving relationship with him, bringing ourselves ever closer to him, knowing that we always have a welcome embrace in the Father's arms. Some time ago, Ian preached on the prodigal son. It's, it's quite a while ago. Uh, relating the story particularly to uh, Rembrandt's painting as seen by Henry Nguyen in the book that he wrote and the painting that he saw in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. Linda asked me one day, what do you want to do for your 70th? It was just after Ian had preached on the prodigal. And I replied tongue-in-cheek, I'd like to see the painting. Never did I imagine what a magnificent picture this is. And to see in that picture the father's embrace of his wayward son. The picture's huge, eight foot by six foot. And it was just a remarkable experience to stand there 
I said to our, our tour guide when we were on the coach going towards the Hermitage, I said, I showed her the book, I took it with me. I said, will we see the painting? She said, you will definitely see the painting. And she was not wrong. We turned a corner and bang, there it was. Eight foot by six foot. Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal. Drawing near to God and cleansing our hands reminds us of the Levitical priesthood where the priest in the Old Testament he would before entering the tabernacle would wash himself, he'd put on clean priestly robes and then he'd draw near to God as he went to the Holy of Holies he would just stop at the laver and he would look in and there would be a reflection of his face and he would make sure that his face was clean. And as a final act, he would wash his hands and his feet. And then proceed to make an offering on behalf of the people. And the New Testament, of course, teaches us about the priesthood of all believers. We don't have to go through all that paraphernalia that they did in the Old Testament. Our salvation involves more than just submitting to God in repentance. If we belong to him, our hearts will desire a close communion with him. And we will purify our hearts, taking note of our inner thoughts and our motives and our desires. We're almost there. But verse 9 really hits us. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, dear. What a really cheerful note that is. So, does God want us to be a bunch of long-faced miseries? Does he really desire that we portray our faith as though we had the world's problems on our shoulders? Of course not. But when we see our sin for what it really is, when we are contrite before him, then we will grieve and mourn. When we repent, there will be tears. But we are confident that our God is merciful and will never turn away a broken and a contrite heart. Mourning is the inner response to such brokenness, while weeping is the outward manifestation of that inner sorrow that we have over our sin. No, God wants us to be joyful, rejoicing in his goodness and grace. And we come to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Friends, when we are conscious of being in the presence of the majestic, infinite, holy God, then we will be humble. When we appreciate the wonder of our salvation, the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross for each one of us, then we will be humble. When we acknowledge that all that we have is in and through him, then we will be humble. And then we will experience him lifting us up 
exalting us through nothing of ourselves and our mourning will be over. Our tears will be gone. He'll put a joy in our steps and a smile on our faces. Amen.